The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. There are business leaders that are making so much more than profit in their enterprises. They're elevating their businesses, teams, and themselves to add more value, and so can you. Welcome to the Business Elevation Show with host Chris Cooper. If you are looking for ways to elevate success while contributing to a better world, you'll want to listen for the next hour. Now here's your host, Chris Cooper. Hi, this is Chris Cooper and welcome to another week on the Business Elevation Show. I'm really looking forward to uh, talking today and uh, introducing my guest to you, uh, my friend, I think we, we could say, we've become quite good friends, uh, Mark Levy. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, with Mark about making your business compelling. Uh, before we do that, I'd just like to say a huge thank you to my guest last week. Uh, my guest last week was the head of economics at HSBC's uh, commercial uh, business in the UK, Mark Beresford-Smith. And Mark and I were talking about you know, what you need to know about economics uh, in the uh, you know today and we we had a long chat about brexit and we talked about trump and and also about mark's amazing story because mark speaks uh, maybe 150 times a year to audiences and he's been blind since he was four so it was a really interesting interview that that we last week with mark if you've not heard it just go into the archive and and have a good listen so how can you seek the inspiration that you need to create really compelling uniqueness in your business now mark Levy, he finds inspiration through some really intelligent creative techniques and he also um, has techniques such as visiting really unusual places to sort of seek ideas and get that inspiration. So whether you're looking today to tell your business story in a really compelling way or you're seeking a new compelling book title or you're wanting to know how to create great hooks for your new sales campaign, then uh, we're going to cover some of those things today, and I think you'll find this interview really, really valuable. Now, Mark is the founder of Levy Innovation. It's a positioning firm that helps consultants and other thought leaders to increase their fees by up to 2,000%. He's worked with um, a former White House department head. He's worked with CEOs of big organizations. He's worked at, uh, with a former head of strategy at Harvard Business School a member of Major League, League Baseball, TED and TEDx speakers. I could keep going on. And his, his past, he was chief marketing officer of a branding organization. I had clients such as Gap and Samsung and Time Warner. And today he's written for the New York Times. He's written or co-created five books, including Accidental Genius, using writing to generate your best ideas, insight and content. It's been translated into 10 languages. Uh, he created the O'Reilly video course, Influencing People Honestly, Teaching Teachers How to Persuade Ethically and Openly. Um, and one thing I find really fascinating about Mark as well is that he has cre- he creates magic tricks and magic shows. And his work has been performed in, in the Carnegie Hall and also Las Vegas and been on many uh, major TV ne- networks. So a huge welcome today to Mark Levy. Thank you so much, Chris. Chris, are, are all your guests named Mark because you said last week's guest was named Mark. Oh, I, and I, also, I, I feel commoditized now. I'm afraid it's compulsory. Right. 
Yeah. Whether they are <laughs> not, you call them that. <laughs> no, they're not. They're not all cold marks. Um, yeah, but I need I need people who can uh, make a, a mark on people's um, minds and uh, and help them grow their businesses. So maybe, maybe there's some link in there. But um, yeah. yeah, no complete coincidence. And however, you know, in terms of uniqueness, you are my only guest I think who's ever created magic tricks for right. in Las Vegas, and you're the only one who has to rush inside somewhere to avoid um, some really interesting neighbours because you've got bears in your garden sometimes, haven't you? That's right. I, I live in the woods and I actually did not see any bears this summer, but there was a mother bear and two cubs and um, um, my wife got pictures of them. Uh, uh, the mother bear was like rubbing herself up against a tree in the backyard. So <laughs> she got, yes, and a garbage man came up to me and he said, oh, I don't think you want to go in that direction, the direction I was walking. He said, because I saw a bear dragging a deer into the woods. You know, there's like blood trails and things like that. So I don't think you want to go in that direction. So uh, anyway. At least it got some food. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, I just got this uh, imagination you know, of you um, you and these bears in your garden. I just uh, I don't know why. I was, th- I was think about Mark Levy. I think of bears. Right, um, right. <laughs> So, I mean, it's because, again, I live in the woods, so I draw a lot of inspiration from this kind of stuff. You know what I mean? From seeing animals, from seeing trees, from seeing things like that. You know, I, uh, I study them. It's fantastic. One of my favorite shows when I was a child was uh, Grizzly Adams. Uh-huh. I just love I just love that you know, out there with these with these bears and, and the deer and the wildlife and yeah. it seemed uh, amazing, beautiful scenery as well. Right. right. I was happy wanted to come to the U.S. for right. a holiday and things. Right. So you pictured, the, you pictured the U.S. to be a Grizzly Adams show. Yeah, probably. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Grizzly Adams and uh, what was that program with? Was it Kevin Arnold? You used to see a lot. Um, oh, there was a, there's a TV show about a kid in a school. We used to we used to watch uh, used to watch that as well. Oh no! I'm sorry. And Greece, Greece, of course. Oh, okay. Right. I was busy watching the British shows, you know, like Monty Python and the prisoner. So you were, you were thinking America was like Grizzly Adams. And I was thinking that England was like, uh, the prisoner, you know? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, I had somebody talking to me about Downton Abbey and saying, uh, you know, is, is England like Downton Abbey still? Um, so it's interesting, isn't it? You can get different perceptions. Right. Right. Exactly. Well, that, I mean, that shows how much the media influences everything, which, I mean, kind of ties into what it is we're going to be talking about today, about, you know, about how images, you know, projecting uh, uh, images and the truth of things. Yeah. Have you, have you, one, one place you should go to, Mark, I know you, you like visiting different places. Have you ever yeah. been to the, the location where The Prisoner was filmed? Oh, right. Off the coast. What is that? Dover? Where is that? No, it's in Wales, actually. Oh, it's in Wales. So, no, I haven't. Have you? Yeah, it's called Port Merion, and it was pottery there. It's a really, it's got a yeah, it's a really interesting place. The whole place is kind of a folly, I think, and it's got also very got an unusually warm climate for for Great Britain, where it's located. And yeah, the prisoner was filmed there. It's yeah, a very different, quite eccentric place to visit. So I think you'd love it. Oh, beautiful! I, I am definitely going to go there. Promise. Yeah. So, so what have you been up to? We, you've been on the show before. You were on a few weeks, well, a few months ago, and I thoroughly enjoyed talking to you and had to ask you back. So, what's what have you been up to since our last show on positioning? 
So the usual stuff. So I position people around big, sexy ideas and I coach them on how to write books and give speeches to use as skyrockets for their business. And I uh, help them increase their fees by up to 2000%, you know, the usual. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's that stuff. It's all, and great people, you know. So, <laughs> so, so tell me, you, you book, you know, this interview is about, you know, making your business compelling. What, what, is, what is a compelling business to you? Um, well, to me, a compelling business, and I mean this in a, like a design parameter way, like in a real way, it's a business that stands out as one of a kind. Like it's like a business that's totally unique and that you can't do without, mm. or, or perhaps you could do without it, but it's certainly you retain it in mind. And mm. so often when I work with business, uh, when I work with clients on their books, on their speeches, on whatever it is that uh, we have to work on, like a design parameter to me is, is this thing one of a kind or how can we make it one of a kind? Even it's just a game. Like even if you don't go to market with this thing, like let's just do a thought experiment. Like how are we going to make this one of a kind, right? So uh, uh, may, if I may an example. Sure. Yeah. So, so for instance, I wrote a book. Uh, I co-wrote a book with uh, Matt King, who's the headline magician at Harris for the past 15 years in Las Vegas. And the book is called Tricks With Your Head. It's the first book of its kind. It's a book of magic tricks where the human head is the central prop in every trick. So you learn the illusion of stabbing a fork in your eye so your eye pops and liquid spews out. You learn the illusion of sucking a french fry up your nose and the illusion of reading someone's mind with a drinking straw by sticking a drinking straw in their ear and seeing what thoughts they have and telling them what thoughts you see inside their head. So that's tricks with your head. Now you may say, and again, by the way, those are all illusions. Don't really do those things at home. Don't, don't be sticking uh, forks or things in people's eyes. But the idea that like you can say, oh, that book, like, I'm not interested in that book or, you know, that's a nutty book or anything like that. It's like, sure, and you're not the right audience for it, but you remember what that book's about. It's a book of magic tricks where the human head is the central prop in every trick. You know what I mean? It's memorable because it's unique. So you'll talk about it to people, perhaps, and you're able to talk about it in a way that other people will like it'll interest the right people. It's like often when I speak to people and they'll say, here's what my business is all about. And I'll say, you know what? I bet you you're really helping people with that. That sounds great. But you know, I couldn't talk about that to anyone. It wouldn't make any sense. It would sound like everyone else. So while you should still be about that thing you just told me about, that's not what it is. Like we can't lead with that because no one will remember you, right? Makes sense? Yeah. Being one of a kind or first of its kind? Yes, yes. You, you, uh, I read one of your blog posts, which was about when you were younger and you were playing baseball and you, uh, yeah, you took a position up of, of, of catching. Um, it was about, uh, what I liked about it was uh, that I, the idea that what you did is you went and chose an unoccupied space. That's right. I think I may have talked about that on the last show. I'm not sure. 
But yeah, it was the idea that I wanted to be a catcher. It was my dream to be a catcher. And there's nine positions in American baseball. And when I went to the tryouts, uh, uh, pardon me, I wanted to be a first baseman. That's what I want to be. And when I went to the tryouts, I ran to first base and there were four or five other kids standing at first base. And I was too darn scared to try out against them because now I know, knew like, oh, well, I could never be a first baseman. Like my dream, I didn't want to confront my dream. I was too terrified. I was too nervous. So instead, the only position that was unoccupied was catcher. And the manager of the team, this adult, said, we can't play baseball without a catcher. So even though everyone's standing at the position they want to be at, like we'll have tryouts at those positions where there's multiple kids there, but we still need a catcher. So who here, before we do all these tryouts, who wants to be the catcher? And I just found myself running over to be the catcher. And, you know, which I ran there because I was a coward. But the second part of that story is I excelled at being a catcher. And as a matter of fact, I made the all-star team, you know, and like I ended up loving my, I played baseball. I loved being a catcher or whatnot. And it was all about finding this unoccupied position. And so that's with my clients. That's the work that we tried to do in order to make them compelling. It's what's the position do you win by showing up? Right. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the idea of being compelling. So you go ahead. So I just wonder if you had, you know, some examples of, you know, businesses that you felt really were compelling and have most inspired you. Oh, yeah. Um, well, so there's businesses that I've helped be compelling. Um, uh, um, uh, should I, should I, I'll talk about one that I helped. Okay. I was going to say rather than one I uh, hadn't. So um, uh, a client, uh, Lisa McLeod. Yeah, do you know Lisa? Yeah, Lisa's been on the show. Yeah, she's uh, she's uh, she's great, Lisa. Noble Purpose. Yes, yes. Tell me what you know about Lisa. Go ahead. Well, what what I know about Lisa? I mean, Lisa is uh, she she has this sort of I think it's a series of books now, doesn't she? Around around noble purpose and about right. uh, selling with noble purpose, selling with noble with purpose, noble purpose. And leading with noble purpose, and she writes for Forbes and things like that. But she did some nice reviews around my book. Um, but right. uh, very well, very well written books, I think, and uh, I recommend uh, the Selling with Noble Purpose regularly. Yeah, and, and you know she speaks at Google, she speaks at other places. Like she's a huge in demand, like a top top headliner or whatnot. But you know, five years ago, when uh, she came to me, she was really just teaching people how to sell, and you know there were techniques that she favored. But there were a lot, it was a lot of different techniques and a lot of other people's techniques. She was just good at sales. So she would teach people uh, whatever the, you know, what the organization wanted in terms of sales, like how to make their sales staff or whatnot. But like there was nothing that stood out as pure Lisa. And so Lisa hired me and I interviewed Lisa and, you know, like she talked about like, this was, we were just having normal business conversations. And she was talking about, for instance, Thomas Jefferson and John Adams and the Constitution and Unitarianism and freedom and liberty. 
along with talking about sales, about closing techniques or whatnot, because our conversations were wide ranging because you don't know where the good ideas are going to be. So when I'm speaking to people, I try to get them to uh, range widely. So she was talking about all this stuff. And then also while she was talking in the middle of a sentence, and I remember it very clearly in the middle of the sentence, she stopped the sentence. She said, you know, what I really want to do is uh, is help uh, bring the nobility back to the sales profession. Mm-hmm. And then she went on with whatever it was that she was saying. And I remember that because I laughed and I said to Lisa, bring the nobility back to the sales profession. Okay. Because I consider myself a sales guy. So I said, okay, I know a lot of sales people. I, I, I don't know that I'd call all of us noble, maybe some of us, but uh, uh, um, um you know, so anyway, those ideas, her talks about liberty and John Adams and these kinds of things, and the idea that she wanted to bring mobility back to the sales profession. So I said to her, Lisa, you're not a, a sales trainer anymore. You're a sales leadership consultant. You only talk to like VPs and CEOs and people like that. And you don't train people on other people's sales. You train them on your own sales tech uh, ideas which is selling with noble purpose. And here's what noble purpose is. And here's the backstory about how you, how you, you know, like where this idea came from, because all noble purpose was, was this brilliant stuff that Lisa was talking about, but we put the idea of noble purpose above it. Like, right. We branded it as noble purpose. Like, here's how you do noble purpose. Here's how it's used, blah, blah, blah. And anyway, Lisa ran with it and, you know, she's become like this superstar you know, because it's so perfect for who she is and it's so one of a kind for who she is, right? If you need noble purpose, you have to get Lisa. You can't get anyone else because it would be a watered down version of what she brings. Mm. Mm. Yes, uh, I completely uh, completely get that. So it's about you know, this, this compelling uh, partly comes about out of your authenticity as well. Yeah. Oh, I have a lot to say about this. It, um, you almost always need to, um, you need to be honest about who you are to a degree that you, that you may never have been before. And I mean, even if you're an honest person, I need you to be more honest than perhaps you have been. And I mean, honest from like a writer's standpoint, a writer's point of view. And we can, uh, uh, I have a lot to say about this and, you know, we can, uh, uh, we can talk more about it. Let's do that after the break then. So we're going to go to commercial break. We'll be back with you again in just a couple of minutes. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Would you like to work personally with the host of this show to help realize your potential? Chris Cooper supports business leaders and high potential individuals to achieve greater success in their businesses and careers. Support includes the opportunity to join a high return group mentoring and mastermind program called the Achiever Program, one-to-one mentoring and coaching, facilitated leader development workshops and speeches. Email info at bemoreachievemore.com to arrange a free, no-obligation consultation to see how Chris and his team can help you. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. America is heading over a fiscal cliff. Home prices are still receding and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? 
Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you are listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific. tuned into the business elevation show with your host chris cooper if you have a question or comment about our show please direct your emails to chris at chriscooper.co.uk that's chris at chriscooper.co.uk now back to chris cooper hi it's chris cooper i'm with mark levy we're talking about uh, making your business compelling and before the break we started talking about the importance of honesty so mark would you like to continue and uh, share with us your thoughts on honesty and why it's so important to you know, developing a compelling business? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So honesty is how you really get your work done. And honesty is what truly makes you unique. I remember that I was working with a leadership consultant and he had written a blog post we, and I was going over his writing and there was a sentence in his blog post. And it said something like, I don't remember the exact sentence, but all great leaders ask themselves this question, and I don't remember what the question was, before they make a decision. And I remember saying to him, you know what, I know a lot of great leaders, and I can almost guarantee you that none of them ask this question before they make a decision. So that's a big problem because you're a great leadership consultant and people trust you. So now they're going to read this blog post. They're going to say all great leaders ask themselves this question before they make a decision. And then they're going to say, I never asked myself this question before I make the decision. I must not be a great leader. And I don't think I'll be able to ask myself this question all the time. I just know myself. So I could never be a good leader. And so I said to my guy, I said, so you're disempowering your audience because they so trust you. And I actually think here that even you don't ask yourself this question. I think essentially you're lying. And I said, you, you wrote this sentence because it sounds good and it sounds like it should be right, but it isn't right. You're lying. And, you know, I think you should take it out. And he said, like, and this guy's outstanding, you know, and, you know, like, trust me, I say all this stuff with love. My clients are never offended by this stuff. And, you know, he said, no, no, you're absolutely right. And the next day he emailed me and I promise you what he emailed me, he wasn't being sarcastic or funny. He was totally stone cold, like straight with this stuff. He said, Mark, here are four other blog posts I had written before you gave me that counsel yesterday. I went through them and I edited out all the lies. Could you please read them over and see if I missed any? And you know what I mean? Like that's how you get to like the real stuff. My, my elevator speeches, right? Consultants and other thought leaders hire me to increase their fees by up to 2000%. How did I come up with that? It's that 
I came with a, up with it years ago. I started to write down facts about each one of my customers, you know, my clients, who they were, what it is they did, what results we got for them, like just fact after fact after fact. And I saw, oh, this guy used to charge $1,000 an hour. Now he charges $20,000 an hour. And this guy used to make $70,000 a year. Now he makes over a million a year. And this, you know what I mean? Like I didn't head out looking for that. I just wrote out a whole bunch of clients and I went from client to client. And so it's like, oh yeah, up to 2,000%. By the way, now it's way over that. But people know me for up to 2,000%, so I stick with that. But, <laughs> um, but that was the idea of being compelling. Like it was being honest about what it is I had done for people. Like I didn't try to be more than I was. I was just looking for the facts. One other version, one other story about that. Like I can't stress how important this is to everyone listening. I was working with a client, um, um, Lisa Norell. Brilliant. I love Lisa. Uh, and, and she had given me a book proposal she had written. And it was a marketing book proposal. And she said, how can I make this stronger? And I was looking through, she had a list of competitive titles in her proposal. And like her book was about dealing with big data as a marketer. You know, it was a, like a, you know, a straight ahead marketing book. And I said, Lisa, I know you don't say this in these write-ups under the competitive titles, but this title and that title, and these were two titles in her competitive titles analysis. I know, because I know all about books. I used to be in the book industry. Those two titles I know have a metaphysical component to them. There's a spirituality to those two titles. You don't write about it there. You write about them for other reasons, but I know that they're spiritual. Am I to, to guess that spirituality and that kind of thing is super important to your business in working with chief marketing officers? And she said, yes, it is. And I said, do you ever advertise that anywhere or something? And she said, no, I don't. And I said, uh, and we talked about, like, I said, how does this spirituality show up in your work? And she said, so for instance, when I meet with CMOs, you know, she's this real go-to person for CMOs, like there'll be a big group of CMOs. And she said, so I start the meeting by asking, uh, uh, like, I don't remember how many, but like five different questions. She has them do exercises to relax them and ground them and to get them to access a different part of who they are. That's just how she prepares them for the meeting. She doesn't feature it or anything. And I said, so that's what your book has to be about. Like scrap this book proposal you wrote. What you do is CMOs of large organizations, like the ones you work with, they, they have so much information coming at them and so much technology and all this stuff like it's a 24 seven world 365. Like it's really like, like technology is not going to solve the problem for them. They need to be different people than they are. They need to be people who can be quiet in themselves in the storm of information that the marketplace is throwing at them so that they're better able to see the right information and make calm, you know, confident decisions and take risks and whatnot. Like, so you help them become, you know, the like more centered so they can deal with this maelstrom of information. And so anyway, that's what her book ended up being. It's called The Mindful Marketer. You know, it's done great. And, you know, like her work now overtly is more in that realm. And it's all because, 
you know, she is more honest about who she is and how she gets results. And it's the same for like almost any client who walks through my door. It would be the same for you, Chris. Like, I don't know where that is, but there's some place where if you were more honest, the work you'd be doing, you would be enjoying even more than it is currently now. It's the same for me. Like, I'm sure I'm lying to certain <laughs> things where I'm like, oh, you need to be real honest about it. Is this making sense? Yeah, completely. Completely. And then we were just talking there about, you know, book and uh, I spent, or we spent nearly two, two years trying to work out a title for our book. And, you know, I wonder, are there other techniques and tools to create, you know, compelling book titles or, you know, compelling headlines for newsletters and blogs and emails? Sure. How do you do it? Uh, well, so sometimes when people go to write book titles or email uh, subject lines or things like that, they freeze up because they think this is super, super, super important. And it is important, but they freeze up to a degree that makes them come up with titles and subject lines and things that aren't good. You know what I mean? Because again, they're not, they're, they're kind of cutting off their, their access to true power in who they are. So what it is I like to do is let's say someone's trying to come up with a title for a book. I have them go through their writing. Let's say they've written a book proposal so far and they have a provisional title of the book proposal, but they know it's not a good title for their, their book. So they want a better title or they're going through what, or they've written the whole book and they want to come up with a better title, whatever it is. I have them go through what it is they've already written and I have them underline promising words and phrases and ideas in their writing, right? I have them either on their computer or printed out, just underline stuff that seems cool to you. Like, you don't even have to explain to me yet why it's cool, just underline stuff. And then after they've done it, they go back and they look at it, and then I say, okay, try to take every cool thing that you underline, every phrase, every word, and try to see if you can make that into a title. So for instance, I'll give you an example. Uh, years ago, I wrote a book with the wonderful Joel Bauer. Um, and Joel, the Wall Street Journal Online calls him the chairman of the board of corporate trade show rainmaking. And we wrote a book for Wiley. And the original title that we had for that book was Pitch Mind, because Joel is a professional pitchman. In trade shows, he creates crowds of 300, 500, 800 people. He does, uh, uh, now he teaches people how to do that. But at the time, he was doing that work, uh, I think, exclusively. And so, so, like, you know, how could you become this kind of miracle pitchman? Like, so it was like pitch mind. And the publisher didn't like that title. And so they said, come up with a new title. And all I did was I took the proposal, which they loved, you know, they signed us up for the book and I underlined key ideas. And one of the ideas in describing who Joel was, I said, Joel Bauer is a, is a man who persuades people who don't want to be persuaded in the trade show. He'll stand on a 17 inch high ladder, you know, like stool in front of a, 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 the booth of his client. And he'll create crowds out of nothing with his competitors surrounding him. You know, blah, 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 that stuff. So one of the things I underlined was, you know, like he persuades people who don't want to be persuaded. And so I came up with 17 titles from doing that. And one of the titles, it was just one of 17, was how to persuade people who don't want to be persuaded. And they said, bingo, that's the title. 
and we took that title and it ended up being, you know, like on BNN.com, it reached number six and on like Amazon, it reached 61 or 67 or something like that. So anyway, that would be an example. And the idea behind that, Chris, is that, is that to me, when you were writing the other parts of your work, the proposal, the book or whatnot, um, it may have been like you in a much more relaxed state, just writing about ideas and stories that were important to you. You may not have been freezing up so much as when you were trying to create a title that would be insanely great or, you know, like an email, like a, you know, a subject line that would, everyone would open. Like you just become like too scared to be good at that point. So I try to help people see, no, no, you've already done the work when you were in a different state of mind. So let's look at what you did there. Do you have a view on, on say the, the type, you know, the, the title of a blog or the title of a, you know, a newsletter or email, um, you know, you see all sorts coming through to try and, you know, get your attention and some seem to work and some go over your head. Do you have a, an opinion of what the, the best uh, sort of titles that do um, persuade people to open them are? Oh, for, uh, for emails. Yeah. Um, I would say if I just had to do a blanket rule, I don't write a lot of emails, uh, but I have, and they, they've been rather successful. What I tend to do, so I don't know that this is an all-encompassing strategy, but it's a strategy that I tend to use, is I like, in order to make a, compel a compelling business, and this goes for your email subject line, is you want to show the audience, you want to show your audience that you understand them to a degree that stuns them, that they are shocked. It's almost like they go, son of a gun. I like, how did this person know this about me? Like that's, you know, like, so for, um, um, or you're identifying them with an idea that they truly, truly respect and, and idolize. So for instance, like just as an example, I once wrote an email blast for the publisher, Barrett Kohler, because I wrote, it was for uh, a, a book marketing workshop that they were holding. And one of my books, Accidental Genius, is from Barrett Kohler, and I love Barrett Kohler, and I've been a member of the community for 20 plus years. And when my subject line for this was marketing the Barrett Kohler way. Now that was not at that point what the workshop was about, you know what I mean? Like it was, it was just a bunch of like ideas about how to market your books or so. But I said to myself, everyone on this list, it has signed in to be a Barrett Kohler person. So Barrett Kohler signifies like honesty to people. It signifies ethics. There's a lot that signifies it's a very strong publisher with very defined values. Like they really signify the certain thing. And people involved in Barrett Kohler are honored to be involved with Barrett Kohler. So it was that idea of marketing the Barrett Kohler way. So I knew that people who had signed up for that list would go, oh, wow, that means marketing in an honest way. Marketing in a way I don't have to be ashamed of. Marketing, you know what I mean? In yes. an ethical way. And anyway, the open rate on that was huge. And the sign-up rate was something like 15%. Like, I don't remember the exact rate, but it was something like enormous, you know, for an email blast. But that would be... You know, I, I always preach that to people, no matter what it is you do, you kind of need to let the audience know that you really understand them. Um, an example in an elevator speech, 
I do, uh, I do an elevator speech uh, format sometimes. I have many different ones called You Know How When. So, so Chris, ask me. I'm going to use this format right now to answer you. So, and understand, pay particular attention. In the beginning, I'm going to lay out who my client is and what they're experiencing. So ask me what I do for a living. So, so Mark, what do you do for a living? Well, you know how when a business person will meet a prospect at a business conference or a business mixer, and the prospect will ask the business person, what do you do for a living? Just like you asked me right now. And the business person will start to answer. And in about eight or nine seconds, the prospect who asked the question will kind of start looking over the business person's shoulder to see who else is more important in the room, who's more impressive in the room, or or the prospect will suddenly look at their watch and they'll say, oh my God, you know what? I have to go. I I have a meeting now that I totally forgot. It was a meeting they, they didn't remember they had nine seconds ago, but somehow now they realize they have it. Or my favorite is they'll say, oh my God, you see that woman standing over there? I've been waiting to talk to her all night about a business deal and she's free right now. Excuse me, I'll be back. And the prospect leaves to go to talk to the woman. And the business person knows what happened. The business person knows the prospect will never be back. And the business person feels awful. And they don't feel awful just because they lost a potential prospect and a potential client and potential business and revenue. It's that that business person, like so many of us, ties up their self-concept of who they are and what their business is. They tie them up together. So having that prospect kind of diss the person's business, almost like negated the business person's entire self-concept, right? It's like you're dissing my business, so that means my life is not worth it. Like my life, you know, I'm spending my time doing the wrong stuff. This is horrible, right? So if that makes sense, what it is I do, the work I do, is to make sure that that never happens again for that business person. I teach them how to talk clearly and engagingly about their business so that next time that kind of situation happens, they have someone ask them what they do for a living. The two of them are going to have a conversation that is so relevant to both of them that the rest of the room is almost just going to kind of drop away because they're talking about ideas that matter so much to the prospect's life. So that's what it is I do. So anyway, Chris, the the reason why I said did that um, elevator speech for you that format, you know how when, and it's painting who the who the 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 target market is, who the 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 prospect is, and it's them having a problem without you being around yet, right? You're not even around. It's like here's what their life is like before they've instituted your solution, but it's like. There is a spot where you would put in all this detail that shows the person you're talking to, your target market, that you know exactly their life. And by the way, in that in that elevator speech I just told you, the reason I had so much good detail in it about looking over someone's shoulder to see who's more important in the room or looking at the wristwatch, you know, is because all that stuff before I learned how to do this stuff 20 years ago, all that stuff happened to me. All I was doing was was talking about my own life, you know, and when I deliver that elevator speech to people, um, like they either break into an enormous smile because they can't believe that someone knows what they're going through or like they almost like have to hold on to the table because I've had people say that it's like I, I felt like I was in another world, like 
you were describing my life. I couldn't believe it. And so, you know, forgive me for going on about that. But like we're talking about email subject lines and things like this. You need to show the person you're talking to that you really get them, what it is they're going through and what they're trying to accomplish in life. And if you speak to them in such a way that they really see that you understand them and you're honest about them, they're very willing to listen to what your solution is going to be. Like you're 80% there if they feel you really understand them. Mm. I like the, I like the, do you know how, when, because what I, in what you articulated there and the way you told that story, what it doesn't feel is it doesn't feel contrived. It doesn't feel like you've, you know, tried to articulate a, you know, a, uh, some words into, into, into some elegant prose that, um, so I think what I'm trying to say is you, you told a story yeah. And it, it seemed more natural. Right. Uh, you know, rather than trying to say, you know, something that gets the point at about 30 seconds. Right. Which sounds very contrived. Sometimes people come up to me and they'll deliver an elevator speech. And it's this very like five second thing. And it's like some high concept thing. And I just want them to leave. It's like, you know, it's like, oh, my God, did you really just say that to me? You know what I mean? Like, I, I'm a Sherpa for, you know what I mean? Like, they'll try some gimmicky thing. And if you try a gimmicky thing, it better be good. It's better just to be honest about who you're working with and what you do for them. Yeah, no, I like that. Great. Well, we're, we're going to go on a commercial break again. And after the break, I'm really kind of interested to explore some of the, you know, unusual sources and, and techniques that you use to... Um, do your thinking around helping uh, people develop you know, compelling businesses and propositions and communications and the like. So I'll be back again with you in just a couple of minutes. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Would you like to work personally with the host of this show to help realize your potential? Chris Cooper supports business leaders and high potential individuals to achieve greater success in their businesses and careers. Support includes the opportunity to join a high return group mentoring and mastermind program called the Achiever Program, one-to-one mentoring and coaching, facilitated leader development workshops and speeches. Email info at bemoreachievemore.com to arrange a free, no-obligation consultation to see how Chris and his team can help you. You are tuned into the Business Elevation Show with your host, Chris Cooper. If you have a question or comment about our show, please direct your emails to chris at chriscooper.co.uk. That's chris at chriscooper.co.uk. Now back to Chris Cooper. Hi, this is Chris Cooper. I'm with I'm with Mark Levy. We're talking about uh, making your business compelling. And before the break, Mark was sharing a, a methodology around developing your kind of elevator speech in a very authentic way. Uh, and was using this concept of do you know how when. And um, I just mentioned that to Mark during the break that I like that. So I'd just, just like to just finish off and share a little bit more. So, Mark, do you want to just... Uh, uh, you know, continue that piece, and uh, oh. so he's got a bit of the jigsaw that will help people. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know how when, and I don't remember where I first heard that. I maybe heard it in the 80s or so. It's not, not my technique. But the way I use it is a little unusual is because often I will sit with a client and just ask them over and over again, uh, uh, like, what are you, what's your business about? Like, you know, what are you in business for or whatnot? And they're required to answer, you know how when, and then just paint a picture. They don't have to paint the solution, but just about the client and helping the client. And as soon as they're finished, whether it's 20 seconds or a minute, I just say, so what do you do for a living? I ask them the same question again. And they're required to say, you know how, when, and now they need to say something different to me. And I do that over and over for a few minutes. Like, so, you know, what do you do for a living? And they have to keep going, you know how, when. And if they get stuck, I say, there's zero reason to be stuck because all you have to do is think about a real client of yours and without naming them by name, you know, or naming what's happening. In other words, like, don't, don't betray confident, like, don't give out sensitive information, but just talk about like different clients who you've honestly worked with, but what their situation was like before you arrived. So just think of Bob, think of Janet, think of Ian, you know, you know, just think of it and describe their situations as if they're universal and you'll be able to go all day long. Right. Makes sense. So that's to me, you know, an important way of generating a bunch of these things. And so you can come up with something really good. Brilliant. Brilliant. I like it. So so you, you, you do some sort of interesting things, don't you? You, you, to, to develop the inspiration ideas to develop compelling kind of concepts and thinking and uh you know one of the things you were sharing with me i know you were keen when we we did a pre-chat about this to share is is how you seek inspiration from unusual sources so maybe you could share a little bit about that because it's quite fascinating oh yeah thank you um yeah so one of the reasons why it's difficult for people to come up with big ideas and to be creative is that most of our jobs are not big idea oriented and creative all day long. Even those of us who have a creative job, we often just have to do like kind of normal stuff. So when we have to come up with something special, we're kind of out of practice or, you know what I mean? Or we don't have techniques to use or whatnot. So like we're, we're stuck, we're very smart, but we just don't, we're out of practice and we don't know how to approach what it is we're doing. So One of the things I do is I constantly put myself into unusual situations where I have to think differently so that it becomes a normal part of who I am. And so one of the things I do is remember earlier I told you I study bears, I study nature and whatnot. Like one of the reasons I do that is because on the weekends, first thing in the morning, Saturday till Saturday night, first thing in the morning, Sunday till Sunday night, I go on these really odd day trips that I have to prepare for, that I have to research and I have to, and like sometimes they're a few blocks from my house and other times they're hundreds of miles from my house and I have to drive to them. So I'll do things like I visited in Pennsylvania. There's a town in Pennsylvania called Centralia, Pennsylvania, and it's a mining town in the middle of Pennsylvania. And in, and I may be a little off with some of these facts or some of these dates because I haven't checked in a while, but so if I am, I apologize. But in 1962 or thereabouts, a fire was accidentally set underneath the town. 
So for 55 years, they were, I think they were burning garbage in a pit or something like that. And they didn't realize that they set like some coal or something under the, the town on fire. And so, so they didn't realize they had done that for a decade or more until they realized that the ground temperature was so hot. And as a matter of fact, in the early 80s, the ground opened up, a sinkhole opened up, and a little boy almost fell 15 stories below ground. He caught on to something. He didn't. He only fell a little distance. But so the government took over the town. They, you know, like several people sued to stay there. Like people had to leave the town. They knocked down houses so the houses wouldn't fall down. They pulled down street signs. They closed everything off. It became like a, you know, like, you know, like they detoured traffic and all this stuff. And so I visited Centralia, Pennsylvania in order to understand what had happened and why it happened, the history, the science, the sociology, like all that stuff. But even when I got there, for instance, there was a part of the highway that went through Centralia that you can't use anymore. It's blocked off. And it's three quarters of a mile long. And when you get there, it's euphemistically called graffiti highway. It's, it's the entire three quarters of a mile. Every square inch is covered in graffiti the most imaginative graffiti you could imagine. It's almost a mile long. And the wild thing is that graffiti artists come there and they'll leave their cans there and like families and, and like bikers and whatnot on the weekends come by and they often pick up the cans and they add their own graffiti to it. You know, like it's really bizarre because I thought I'd see this like desolate post-apocalyptic kind of town but like, it's almost like there was a party there and someone had a hot dog stand set up and, you know, <laughs> and so I go to places like that to like all week long, like four, five, six, eight things. It, it, it's not all towns in decay. It's, it's, you know, unusual historical facts. Like, like, um, one other thing, for instance, um, the, during the revolutionary war, King George, you know, there was a statue put up in lower Manhattan, an enormous statue of him on horseback, and they, they painted it gold. It was a lead statue, enormous. They painted it gold. And the, the colonists were, you know, they would uh, try to abuse the statue. I don't know what it was that they did. But so, so a fence was built around the statue, and it's still there. It's the oldest fence in New York City. And it had these finials on top of the fence, these little crowns all along the fence. And anyway, in 1776, I believe the colonists eventually rebelled and they went to the park and they pulled down with ropes this giant statue of King George and they sent it off and they had it because it was lead. They had to cut it up into 24,000 bullets to use in guns, but they also sawed off the little finial crowns on the fence. So if you go there in lower Manhattan you just see this, like, it just looks like a little place to sit with a fence. But that's the oldest fence in New York City. The King George statue was in the middle of it, even though you wouldn't know that. And if you run your finger along the top of the fence, you'll feel uneven, like, bird sections, and that's where they sawed the crowns off. Mm. So it gets me to study, like, why is that the oldest fit? Like, like, so, so follow me. Like, not only am I studying about history, American and British history, but I'm also studying about fences, as silly as that sounds. Like, what were fences made of? Like, when did metal fences happen? You know, when were fences first decorated? What was the surrounding area like? Why did they pick there to have that statue? What was happening there? 
You know what I mean? And so I do that all weekend long, studying the science of things, the history, the math, all the stuff around it. And it kind of gets me in a discovery mood, in an innovation mood, in a creativity mood, in looking for things that are hidden from sight. So when I'm speaking to people, right, and my clients will, you know, will tell you this, like I'll just naturally ask them all kinds of odd questions just because I'm used to being in like a Sherlock Holmes mode and in an adventurer mode because, right, I, I, I've conditioned myself to be that way. Mm. Yeah, no, I can see that. I think uh, also what you're doing is that you've, it's very clear that you have enormous curiosity. Right. And uh, I can almost, uh, you know, I look at, my, look at my children, I've got some pictures of them on a, a beach uh, finding shells and in rock pools and they're just completely you know just completely mesmerized by it and you know can't con- concentrate on anything else and uh you know maybe that's a quality that we we kind of lose if we're not yeah. careful but, but but maybe that contributes to some of the your childlike creativity and and the loss of it in adults as they get older yeah yeah so that's why sometimes you know when we're adults you know our job is you know we're solving all these kinds of problems but sometimes the problems become predictable. And so because the problems are predictable, our answers become predictable. So I'm all about looking at things in alternate ways, just as matter of course. Like I remember one of my clients, um, he, he had a contract to write a book. And he said to me, he said, I can't write this book. He said, like, the idea was good. But like, I haven't thought through the idea sufficiently and whatnot. And I literally, I'm scared. I just can't write this book. I don't know how to write it. And so I said to him, I said to him, okay, let's pick the idea of what the book is about. And now just as a game, I want you to divide that idea into four. Like just cut it up into four pieces. Tell me what the four parts of that idea are. We know that there are in four parts to it. We're playing a game. So tell me what the four parts are. And so he said what the four parts were that he made up on the fly. And I said, okay, pick one of those parts, cut that up into four. And so he cut it up into four. And I said, okay, pick one of those parts. And he did. And I said, no, just tell me about it. And we started talking about it and taking notes. And we did that for another piece and another piece. And to this day, his book is still in print. It's been in print, I think, for like a decade And a lot of the information that we came up with happened like in those calls where I just said, just as a game, let's divide it up into four and divide that up into a four. Um, A a Canadian consultant who works with museums came up. I had first read that in a book of his, that technique. I, I apologize. I forget his name. But anyway, it's doing that kind of thing. And and so to me, going out in these unusual day trips and trying to see things in alternate ways, it's almost, I call them situational creativity techniques. I'll sometimes make up creativity techniques just based on the environment I'm sitting in. So I remember I wrote about this on my blog once. I had to clean my bookshelves. I wanted to get rid of my books. And so pulling my books off the bookshelves and putting them in the middle of the room like in stacks, I had to think about how am I going to like organize them when I put them back on my, my shelf. But I just like started to get ideas just by moving my books around. Mm. And so I took out a yellow legal pad 
And, you know, like, it's kind of like the books, I had to make judgments about what was in each book and how I would best access it. You know, like, like a Ray Bradbury book, Zen in the Art of Writing. Do I put that book with Ray Bradbury's other books or do I put it in writing? And if so, why do I put it in one or the other? And by doing that over and over again, I ended up with like 87 ideas from cleaning my room. It was from <laughs> cleaning my bookcase. It was like, oh, this book is about X and I have it next to book Y and book Y is about one audience and book X is about another audience. So what if as a game, I just combine the idea from book X with the audience for book Y? What idea would that be now? You know what I mean? How could I make that work? You know, and you just do this like just anywhere you're sitting. If I make that thing, you know, like small or bigger, if I cut it into four, if I go to some unusual place, you know, whatever it is, like you're going to have a galaxy of great ideas. Mark, I have to stop you there. We've run out of time. I've been, uh, yeah, it's been absolutely amazing. Have you got, have you got sort of a single message in, in 15 seconds that you'd like to leave us with? Oh, sure. To be compelling, you don't have to be better than you already are. Who you are is absolutely perfect to be compelling with. You just may need to be reveal. You may need to reveal parts of yourself that you're not revealing right now. That's a brilliant way to end, Mark. I always love talking to you. You are you are highly compelling as a as a person. There's some great ideas in there. I've certainly uh, double and underlined uh, you know one or two things that you have said. Um, I think do you know how when I think was really really valuable has got me thinking thanks so much for being on the show it's been a pleasure talking to you again thanks so much Chris and thanks everyone for listening to me I'm honored and, and just uh, on next week's show we have the the voice of Paramount Pictures in in Canada and Nabil is uh, Nabil Doss um he's the the voice of the the adverts uh, around exciting Hollywood blockbuster trailers and what we're going to do is we're going to talk about next week some of the secrets of this immersive cinematic and, and, and the narrative techniques um, that cinema uses that we can then use in business to um, help really focus on the essence of our message and get the attention that our message deserves. So that will follow on really nicely from the talk today with, um, with Mark Levy. So once again, Mark, wonderful to talk to you and to everybody listening. Uh, thanks so much and wish you all well. We thank you for listening to the Business Elevation Show. Please join your host, Chris Cooper, again next Friday at 8 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Be more. Achieve more.